AMSA AdLib is supported by the academic group. Students on a clinical elective, a rotation, or just observing are required to carry short-term medical malpractice insurance. The academic group offers AMSA members worldwide a 10% discount on this coverage. Visit our website for details at amsa.org academicgroup. Welcome to AMSA AdLib. This is Christine. No matter what values a student brings with them to medical school, the cost of their training and the weight of their student loans puts a lot of pressure on their specialty choice. But for those who are really committed to primary care and community-oriented medicine, there are options. The National Health Service Corps is one of those options, awarding scholarships and loan repayment in exchange for commitments to serve in designated underserved areas after residency. As of September 2014, the National Health Service Corps had more than 9,200 active participants, 26% of which are physicians. AMSA AdLib's Rachel Glassford spoke with the National Health Service Corps Director, Dr. Luis Padilla, about his own experience as a scholar of the program, as well as what they are looking for in their applicants. My name is uh, Dr. Luis Padilla. I'm currently the Deputy Associate Administrator for the Bureau of Health Workforce in HRSA. I'm also the um, Director of the National Service Corps. And I have been in this role for almost six months, so fairly new. Um, before that, I was a, uh, and still am, a family physician uh, and working for Unity Healthcare for the last 10 years as their senior health policy advisor. And so, though many listeners and medical students are familiar with the concept of the National Health Service Corps, could you give us a quick rundown of the program? Sure. The National Service Corps is actually one of our oldest uh, programs that, that we have here at the Bureau of Health Workforce. It started, it predates the BHW, of course. Um, it was enacted and created in 1972 to meet the overwhelming medical needs across the country. Um, so it has a very long, rich history. Um, since then, um, there have been over 47,000 participants in the National Service Corps. Uh, it provides through principally three um, programs that we administer, an opportunity for uh, health profession students um, to um, get either loan repayment, scholarship, um, support um, for their medical education. Um, so we have three programs, three principal programs, the loan repayment program, the scholars program, and what we call the S2S, which is our newest innovation of the National Service Corps program. And the difference being in, in the scholars program, where I was a, a, an alumni of, um, you're paid for your medical education in return. Um, the expectation is you would work in a high-need area. Um, Typically, the scholarship is exactly, it's a scholarship. It um, provides direct support for your medical education. It's very competitive. Um, this year, I believe, we had an excess of 2,000 applications, and we're expecting to award 196 awards, uh, nearly half of those being uh, to MD and DO students. So very competitive. So we're very happy to say that we get uh, some very, very qualified uh, applicants for that scholarship. The other program, as I mentioned, is the, the loan repayment program, and that offers graduates of uh, medical school and their residencies um, the opportunity to get loan repayment support, um, either right when you graduate from your, your residency program or if you're already working in a high-need area. Uh, and in return for $50,000 award, uh, the expectation is two years of service or four years if you're doing it half-time. The Students to Service program began in 2012. It's our newest innovation of the National Service Corps program. Uh, and that 
uh, is an opportunity for students to enter into the workforce earlier. What we saw was that it takes typically seven years for a scholar to enter the workforce if they're completing four years of medical school and three years of residency. And we want, wanted to shorten that window of time uh, before we saw um, primary care providers going into the workforce. So that was started in 2012. Um, that program allows a student or a fourth year medical student the opportunity to receive up to $120,000 in return for three years of service full-time or six years of service part-time. Is there a typical career path that the National Health Service Corps participants ultimately end up in? There's there's not really a clear path. It varies and it's really um, dependent on the individual, their organization, their particular career needs and desires. Um, I've worked with individuals who are uh, subsequently gone into academia, uh, that have gone on to lead other uh, nonprofit health um, centers as well. Um, others have gone into federal service, others that have gone into um, teaching uh, or have decided to continue in clinical practice. Um, so it really varies. Um, I think that for us, um, what personally what I would encourage is, is exploring any of those career paths that might be of interest to the National Service Corps participant. I, I think one of the other intangible benefits of, of being a participant um, and working in these community-based settings is that you get the opportunity to innovate at these centers that you wouldn't otherwise get in other settings. Um, you get an opportunity to lead uh, to develop your leadership skills, um, and that has a big, uh, big benefits in terms of your career. I think that if you're able to effectively lead in the community health center setting, um, you're going to be sought after in terms of your your skill set in other settings as well. Could you tell us a little bit more about your journey in becoming a family physician? I attended uh, medical school at Wake Forest School of Medicine. I completed that education in 2001. Before that, I was at the University of California at Irvine uh, and completed my bachelor's degree in science and um, arts, philosophy and biology. Um, and my journey uh, was rather long and non-traditional. Um, I was in medical school, one of the, I wouldn't say the oldest students, but I was older than uh, typically. Um, that you would see in a, in a medical school class. So my, my educational career was varied. I took some time off, um, had some jobs, so sort of a windy path. But as I got closer to uh, entering into medical school, it started to crystallize for me uh, my interest in primary care uh, and specifically my interest in service uh, and underserved. And in 1998, I received uh, the a National Service Corps Scholar Award. Uh, and in return, I provided three years of service in an underserved area, and that was completed in 2007 at Unity Healthcare. Could you tell us a little bit more about that process of finding your passion for service as a medical student, and what kind of experiences you had that sort of solidified that for you? Well, one, for me, it was my background. My, my family uh, are immigrants from Guatemala, um, the first of my family, immediate family to attend college and graduate from college. So for me, it was it really sprung from a, a personal um, desire to provide service and, and really provide um, sort of a payback to a, a country, the United States, that provided my family and afforded my family such great opportunities. So there's that personal side. Um, in 1995, I was fortunate to get a health policy 
um, let's say residency, but it was a, a through the Hispanic Caucus Institute. It was an award that I was I was given an opportunity to provide an internship or, or complete an internship in health policy here, the Office of Minority Health in Rockville, and and that was my first look into national health policy and the needs of the nation's uh, uh, minority population, underserved population, and that solidified for me. Uh, my path forward in terms of underserved uh, medicine, health policy as a career. And how were you first introduced to the National Health Service Corps? That was um, brought to my attention from a financial aid counselor. Um, Like many of our participants who are struggling to meet their educational costs uh, in medical school and in other training programs, um, I was trying to find ways to pay for my dream, um, which is unfortunately a reality for many of us. And my financial aid counselor was very good and diligent in, in pointing out my various options. I had heard a little bit about it, but I hadn't gone in great depth about it. Uh, I knew that I wanted to go into primary care and uh, obviously had a strong interest in underserved uh, medicine, whatever road that would take me. Uh, and she directed me to the National Service Corps. I looked more into it and I thought it was a fit for me. It was a perfect fit for me um, to pay for my medical education for something I ultimately wanted to do. Um, so that was the starting point for me. If you were to recommend where students could learn more or should learn more about the program, what do you think their first steps should be? One is I would encourage them to come to our website at nhsc.hersa.gov. I think that's a, a a uh, good starting point, excellent starting point, will give you our program overviews, uh, the awards that we offer, the eligibility uh, requirements, uh, and then take that information and have a good discussion with your financial aid counselor or a counselor at one of um, the medical schools that they might be attending. Beyond the obvious benefit of the repayment funding, what is the program offering for participants? In addition to the uh, tuition reimbursed for scholars, we offer interview costs when when scholars are ready to be placed and are interviewing at various sites throughout the country. We offer interview support, financial support. We offer relocation support for themselves and their immediate family as well. And we offer them a uh, monthly stipend to support them during their time of education. Um, But outside those financial benefits, uh, I think um, for many of us, the benefit is to get that financial service for something that often we wanted to do in our careers. Um, being part of an alumni network that's over 47,000 strong is a big draw as well, was a big draw for me. Uh, being part of a, of a social mission-minded program that really its intent is to provide high-quality care to underserved areas. Uh, and also that understanding that when you're there, when you're practicing, it may be just you that are providing that care uh, to a community that otherwise wouldn't have a primary care clinician working there. There are, there are many of our, our facilities, our sites throughout the country that are struggling um, to find consistent, uh, high-quality primary care providers for the communities that they serve. And I think the, the obvious benefit of knowing that you would other, that you, this community would otherwise not have that service is a, a tremendous personal benefit. Um, And also realizing that as we continue to strengthen the the nation's workforce and expand access to insurance, we're going to need uh, clinicians like National Service Corps scholars and loan repairs to provide that access to a growing number of, of, of U.S. residents and citizens who need access to those services now that they have insurance coverage. Would you speak personally about um, what that was like for you regarding working with patients who otherwise wouldn't possibly be receiving care and what that did for your physician-patient relationship? 
Well, it, personally for me, it was you know, my desire to, to do this as a career. I, I've, I believe thoroughly that, that underserved care is a specialty of primary care. So it's almost a subspecialty. You're learning things there from a professional level that, that oftentimes mainstream primary care providers don't do, whether it's population health, uh, working in team-based care, um, understanding the, the nexus of social determinants of health and, and in primary care, um, oftentimes mainstream primary care providers uh, don't have an opportunity to, to practice in that environment. On a personal level, um, the connection that I made with the patients that I served in the last 10 years was tremendous. I, I had, I was fortunate, I had the opportunity to, to live and work in the community I served uh, five blocks from the health center that I worked at for the last 10 years and seeing my patients there and I would I would just put a plug in and if anybody out there has the opportunity to do that live in a community that you're going to be working and serving with um, please take it because it's a, it's a tremendous vantage point um, to see um, your pediatric patients grow up in that community understand the struggles of that community firsthand uh, and be better better prepared um, to help and assist in, in solving those problems. How does your experience compare to that of a typical scholar? Or even farther yet, would you consider that there is this sort of typical scholar? I don't know if I would characterize as a typical scholar, but the, the many that I have met, um, both um, in my prior role and now, um, they're very energetic, talented, um, passionate about what they do and dedicated to to the communities that they ultimately want to serve. Um, someone had mentioned the Peace Corps and, and that sort of anal- analogy to the National Service Corps. It's somewhat similar to that sort of um, that desire to uh, improve the lives of others, that desire to, to um, serve in communities um, rather than find jobs. Um, so if I was to characterize a, a scholar or even a loan repayer, one of our participants is that, that again, that, that dedication, passion to service in the community um, is very typical of, of the ones that I've met and continue to meet. Could you describe some of the sites, like where these people would be serving? Currently, we have over 15,000 approved sites, and those vary from urban uh, facilities to rural facilities, Indian Health Service facilities as well. Um, we do have some participants in correctional facilities as well that are eligible. Uh, all of these facilities have one thing in common, that is their areas of high need. Their health profession shortage areas are designated as being health profession shortage areas. So really, um, National Service Corps participants have the opportunity to practice in a wide uh, array of, of clinical settings. Could you tell us more about how their site is determined? Are they assigned a specific site or is there a selection involved? It varies a little bit among our programs, uh, but no one is is typically assigned unless for some reason they weren't able to to uh, gain placement by themselves. Um, it is not, it's not like the Peace Corps where you have to go to this site. What we do is we require our participants to work in um, health profession shortage areas, that is those areas across the country that are in highest of need. So there's a scale from zero to 20 principally, or higher actually that we have. Um, zero being absolutely no need and upwards of 20, 25, and the scale goes up a little, goes up higher. But the higher you go in that score, um, 
the higher need uh, there are for health professions in that area. Typically, our loan repairs are going into areas um, scored HIPSA, with HIPSA scores above 14. This year, um, due to our funding constraints, we weren't able to award, make uh, loan repayment awards to HIPSAs below 16. So our loan repairs are going in fairly high need areas. Our scholars go even higher sometimes. Um, that is determined every year. Uh, but typically 16, 17 is the HIPSA score that the scholars will be placed at. The difference being that scholars um, have to go to a particular HIPSA. So for example, and I don't want to make this too complicated, but if we designate that scholars have to go to seven HIPSA scores of 17 or higher, they can't go to a facility that has a, li a lower score. So in that way, they're limited um, in that we really want our scholars and require our scholars to go into the highest need areas. Loan repairs, depending on our funding, can actually go down lower. And in the past, they have. For the last two or three years, we haven't been able to fund below a 14. So there are still a number of areas across the country that have HIPSA scores of 10, 11, 12, 13 that aren't eligible to receive our loan repairs. Um, so my example would be a good one, and that is after I finished my residency, I started to look for my placement. Um, and we offered, at that time, a list of, of job vacancies across the country. Um, of those sites that were approved by the National Service Corps that had vacancies that I reached out to and interviewed for. It's very similar um, now in that um, scholars have the opportunity to see where those HIPSA facilities are, see where their vacancies are through our job center portal uh, online, and apply for those vacancies. Uh, we provide a great deal of support through our regional offices for those scholars, and, and those re regional offices provide a tremendous amount of support for the scholars during their placement time. So they're not left alone to find sites on their own. If they have any challenges, our regional office staff are there to help them and support them in that placement. And so that placement takes place at the end of residency? For our scholars and loan repairs, yes. Um, but another example is uh, you could be working in a um, HIPSA-designated facility, one that has an approved National Service Corps site. Uh, you may have started that job a year ago or 10 years ago and still have educational debt, uh, and you may be interested in, in our National Service Corps loan repayment program. You could apply. Um, and if you're eligible and you're selected, you get that award to help you pay mm -hmm. for that. So you could be practicing now, and many of our participants are current clinicians who are already out in the field working in areas of high need, um, and we provide them that support through the awarding of the National Service Corps Loan Repayment Program. And what is the application cycle like? What is the timeline for that? Typically, um, in the spring, we have opportunities for our scholars program, and in the winter for our loan repayment program. Um, and then in August, we will be having our um, uh, students to service um, uh, application cycle opening up again. In terms of physicians and future physicians, can you describe the applicants that the National Health Service Corps is looking for? We're principally looking for uh, students who ha have a demonstrated commitment to underserved. Um, primary care uh, right now, we're, and we're seeing an uptick in the number of primary care providers that are, are graduating and entering the workforce. Um, but the National Service Corps, uh, through its program, really wants to select candidates who are interested in that, that part of primary care, specifically underserved care. Obviously, we're looking for um, high-quality students um, that uh, demonstrate that quality of, of uh, academia through their letters of recommendations, their grades, um, and essays that we evaluate. And we're looking for those uh, students, participants who 
have that strong desire, who have really gone out of their way to demonstrate that, um, have some deep understanding of the communities that they want to serve. Um, we're always encouraged by those applicants who apply who are from those communities because I think they lend and offer that perspective. Um, that is the type of perspective that we would want to further in the National Service Corps. Um, so in a nutshell, we'd want um, talented, uh, committed, service-minded individuals. What we're not interested in is someone who's, who's just looking at the financial gains uh, that we offer. Um, what we want to discourage is, is those participants who enter into our programs complete their obligation and then leave those communities. It's rather disruptive uh, for communities to lose um, clinicians, uh, especially those that are already struggling to, to find them. So again, what we're, what we're trying to do here is offer a career path for individuals who, who get our awards and, and look more long-term. Uh, and if it's at, not at that particular site uh, facility, and I would hope that it would be, uh, but somewhere else in the country that, that they might continue to serve in those uh, underserved high-need areas. Could you describe briefly what kind of disruptions the community experiences if a clinician were to leave? Healthcare in general is a relationship-building endeavor, and primary care medicine in particular is, is building strong bidirectional relationships with patients, that communication, developing that trust, um, that lends itself to effective care. That takes time. Uh, it may take years before a community is, is trusting enough of a provider. Um, it is likely that uh, many of our National Service Corps participants who are working there are working in communities that have seen providers come and go. Um, so it takes a little bit more work to develop that trust, and that takes time. Um, but once you, you gain that trust, you start to see a difference in the way you practice, a difference in the way um, the community responds to you and your recommendations and treatment recommendations. Uh, so it's like anything else, that, that trust building and that relationship building takes time. And so when the provider, um, one of our participants, leaves, um, for whatever reason, there's a, there's a toll on that community that we have to start all over in that community. Another provider comes in and it's more time to develop that trust. Um, we may not always have, or that site may not always have another participant waiting in the wings. It may, may take um, several months or several years before they're able to recoup that provider again. In the meantime, that, that community doesn't have a primary care provider, uh, a skilled primary care provider. And that also takes its toll on the community. So um, it's disruptive in many ways. And the more we can do to minimize that and mitigate it, um, the better we'll be serving our communities. So you had mentioned a sort of de dedicated knowledge about the communities that they're interested in serving. What are some ways that participants in the program have demonstrated that kind of passion? In various ways. We've seen um, various levels, including um, volunteering at shelters, um, starting programs um, that begin to address social determinants of health uh, in their undergraduate level. Um, so there's, it's a wide array. And, and what we're doing when we're evaluating those applications, we're seeing how deep is that, that applicant going in those endeavors. Is it simply a, you know, a short stint in that activity and, and then they move on to something else? Or is there something that comes out of that experience that they're able to highlight in their essay that really demonstrates how this has been, um, but it's not hyperbole, but life-changing for them? It really has them thinking about this as a career. Could you describe briefly some of the challenges that a participant may experience as they transition into a role as a provider in an underserved community? Some of the challenges are just 
medicine in general as you transition from um, a learner and, and different roles and responsibilities of a learner into practicing. Um, I think for for me it was that I, I likened it to another one-year fellowship in underserved care. It took me about almost a year to get comfortable with my role as a primary care provider in an underserved setting and working with community members, even living there and understanding the, the dynamics of what was happening in, in my community in which I was living. It took time. Um, it takes time for you to understand just how to deliver care uh, and evidence-based high-quality care, let alone the, the special needs of uh, the communities in which our, our participants um, practice. Um, so there's that. Um, there is the adjustment of, of just simply uh, living in that community. Uh, it may be that this is the first time that you've uh, practiced or lived in an underserved community, and that, that takes some adjustment as well and some settling in. Um, and then there's the practice environment. Um, it's likely that our participants are, are in a new setting uh, that's not academic, uh, whereas you may have had a lot more academic support and, uh, and just peer-to-peer support or um, uh, senior support in an academic setting. Uh, you may not have all of that in, a, in, in the settings that you might be working in, so that requires an adjustment as well. Um, what kind of resources would you recommend for participants who are undergoing that transition? Um, as much as they can to reach out um, to other participants within their organization. Um, it, it may very well be that there are other National Service Corps participants who have been in the program at that site and reaching out to them, make yourself aware that, making them aware that you're there now um, uh, to create that, that mentoring opportunity. Um, providing, we have networks online. I think last I saw was four different distinct groups on Facebook that are um, are discussing very various issues on the National Service Corps. We have our own Facebook page as well. So those forums um, take full advantage of them. Um, we unfortunately don't offer conferences like we did in the past where we um, we would allow scholars and, and loan repair payment participants to, to gather. Um, but we're uh, leveraging whatever other means we have. Um, if you have the opportunity to do, if you're a student, um, doing a clerkship um, in the those community-based settings, whether it's a federally qualified health center or other uh, community health center, um, I would encourage them to, to take take that opportunity to take their third or fourth year elective time um, to uh, visit them um, or even spend that clerkship time with them. Are there particular resources through the National Health Service Corps for students to find mentors? There are. Um, the most direct one is our ambassador program that's available online um, at our website. And that offers uh, any interested individual the opportunity to contact former alumni of our program uh, or supporters of our program um, and reach out to them regarding questions of experience, um, application process, uh, any other suggestions they may have. And is that an opportunity as well for people who are considering the program to learn more? Definitely. I, I think reaching out to any individual who has had direct experience with the National Service Corps is always a great way to gain a little bit more insight into the program. Uh, and of course, you know, directing those interested individuals to our website um, is, again, an important first step in terms of understanding our, our program, the application cycle, the eligibility, etc. Is that something that even undergraduates, that they could possibly bring someone in to present on the National Health Service Corps opportunities? They could. I, I've been approached that way. Uh, 
uh, undergraduate um, students who, who are uh, members of uh, student associations can reach out to um, uh, ambassadors on that list and ask them if they would be interested in, in giving a presentation. And we do have prepared presentations um, for those ambassadors um, that they can utilize. Dr. Padilla, thank you so much for joining us. It was so nice to speak with you and learn more about the National Health Service Court. Is there anything that you would like to emphasize before we wrap up? Well, I'd like to emphasize the uh, Job Center, uh, which we're hoping to uh, redesign um, next year and to better meet the needs of uh, all the participants who utilize it. Uh, but I encourage them to go to nhscjobs.hrsa.gov and also remind any interested um, medical students um, to look at our opening uh, cycle for the Students to Service uh, awards that are coming out in mid-August. Has the cost of your medical education affected your career choices in medicine? Let us know at adlib at amsa.org. You can even record your thoughts on your iPhone's Voice Memos app or an app like Easy Voice Recorder on Android. Email the recording to adlib at amsa.org. The next application cycle for the National Health Service Corps Students to Service Loan Forgiveness Program will be opening very soon. You can learn more about that program and others at nhsc.hrsa.gov. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. This episode was edited by Pete Thompson with help from me, Christine Camizio. The interview with Dr. Padilla was produced by Rachel Glassford, Pete Thompson, and myself. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer. AMSA AdLib is now available through iTunes, so you and your friends can now subscribe directly through your iPhone's podcasts or iTunes apps. AMSA AdLib is supported by the Academic Group. Students on a clinical elective, a rotation, or just observing are required to carry short-term medical malpractice insurance. The Academic Group offers AMSA members worldwide a 10% discount on this coverage. Visit our website for details at amsa.org slash academic group.